Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Let's pray before we begin. God, thank you so much for this opportunity I have tonight. Thank you for this church, for Expositor Seminary. And just thank you so much for your word. Help us tonight to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Help us just to learn a lot so that we can seek to glorify you in our lives. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the late 1500s, a Japanese warlord by the name of Hideyoshi commissioned the building of a colossal statue of Buddha for a shrine in Kyoto. The building of this statue took 50,000 men five years to make. So just think about all the time and money invested to build a statue that would not hear their prayers, that would not hear their cries for help, all that effort devoted to building a cold, lifeless, dead statue. But what is just as tragic today is that we Christians so often do the same thing. We invest our time and our money in our own modern forms of idolatry. How so? Dr. Stuart Scott gives us a good definition. He defines an idol in this way. He says, an idol is anything that we consistently make equal to or more important than God in our attention, desire, devotion, and choices. Or to put it simply, an idol is anything which usurps the place of God in our hearts. So, Practically, then, what, what are some examples for us today? Well, it really can be anything. It's, it's basically what are you serving? You know, it could be our time. It could be our, our money. It could be 
our desires. I mean, it's all sorts of things. It could be our careers. It could be the desire for success or comfort. It could even be electronics or college football. But not for any of us here. <laughs> but you name it. Who, who or what are you serving? You know, and, and then in our church, we actually have a session in our counseling conference about addictions. And it was defined in this way. Addiction is really it's just the sin of idolatry. So the Bible itself, it gives us a few explicit examples of idolatry. Colossians 3, 5 says, covetousness is idolatry. So desiring what you don't have. Philippians 3.19 says, whose God is their belly. So in that, speaking of their lustful passions. And then Jesus himself says in Matthew 6.24, you cannot serve both God and money. So I think we can say safely that these are some temptations that we have today. The temptation to covet or to lust. Or to have a lot of money. That, I think that pretty much sums up our culture. So why then Psalm 115? Well, Psalm 115, it gives us a good contrast. It contrasts the faithless, faithlessness of idols with the faithfulness of God. And it kind of makes sense when you think about the context of the psalm. Um, this is known as an Egyptian Hallel psalm. And in Hebrew, Hallel just means to praise so Psalm 113 to 118, all those psalms are Egyptian Hallel psalms. And these psalms celebrated God's deliverance of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So kind of like what we did tonight where we celebrated the Lord's Supper. They were doing a similar thing. They're celebrating all the things God had done for them. And then most likely, just historically, commentators think it was a post-exilic psalm. So it was written in a time period when the Israelites had come out, come back from Babylon, out of the Babylonian captivity. So then when you have that context in mind, then you have a lot of idolatry. I mean, you know, in Egypt, it was just full of idols. You think back to the time just when God was delivering them out of the land. Now, all these punishments God did, these plagues, they were actually specifically attacking one of the gods that Egypt worshipped. So if you think about, like, one of the plagues was God had everything be turned to darkness for three days. So that would have been attacking the sun god Ra, which is what the Egyptians worshipped. Then if you think about it, that it is a Babylonian, you know, the captives have come back. Just in that perspective, Babylon was just full of idolatry. There all sorts of idols. If you read the book of Daniel, you see a lot of that. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar tells them to build this big statue and, and worship it. And if you don't worship it, you die. And King Darius was very similar. He said, worship me or you're going to die. So there's a just was a lot of polytheism in Babylon. So they're both very polytheistic in their theology. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this psalm. We're going to use it to help us to trust in the true God and to avoid idolatry. So we're going to look at three reasons why we should worship God and avoid idolatry. First reason comes from verse 1. Reason number 1 is because God and God only is to receive glory, not idols. Notice it says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. So if you just look at the very beginning, these first few words, it 
repeats not to us. And that's just showing emphasis. Man should not receive worship. Sadly, our culture does not follow this. We live in a world full of humans who are worshipped and who seek to be worshipped. Just turn on the TV and you'll see it all over the place. However, the fact of the matter is there is only one God and he does not allow the worship of anyone or anything else but him. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And notice how I just said, it says I am the Lord, as well as in Psalm 115 it says Lord. And that term in the Hebrew is Yahweh. And what that really has the idea of is that God is self-existent, meaning he's never been created. And it's also the covenant name for God in the Old Testament. It was the name that the Israelites would have known. I know when Moses said, when he talked to God in the burning bush, he said, who should I say you are? And he said, tell them that I am, talk to you. So that's the idea, Yahweh is I am. And so you think about Jesus in the New Testament. He said, before Abraham was, I am. So he was calling himself the Old Testament name for God. And so what they do, they picked up stones. They tried to kill him. So it's a pretty powerful term, um, and especially in light of this psalm. And we'll get more into that. And notice that it says, not to us, but to your name, give glory. So it doesn't say, um, not to us, but to you, God, give glory. It says to your name. And so that, the reason why is because in the Hebrew mindset, that term name, that a person's name would be more than just an identifier or a label. If you say a name today, more than likely you're not going to think about the meaning behind it. But in those times, it was different. So the idea of God's name just conveyed the idea of who he was, you know, his attributes, his reputation. You know, good parallels, you can think about the story of Moses. And he, he says, show me your glory. You know, let me see your glory. And God says, I will, I will by passing by you, but you can't see me, but you can see me from behind as I pass by. And what does God do? It says in Exodus 34, 6, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. So God, as he was showing him his glory, he was actually proclaiming his name. He was telling him who he was, what he was like, his attributes. And then notice in verse 1, it says, Not to us, but to your name give glory. So that verb there is saying, God, don't give the glory to us. Give it to yourself. Now, it kind of reminds us of the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done. You know, how often... Do we pray that way when we're praying? How often are we focused on God receiving the glory? But what is glory? You know, this is a term that we use often in Christian circles. And it's easy to kind of say and not really think about what it means. And really the term has an idea of heaviness. If you remember back in the Old Testament, there was a man by the name of Eli And he was told by Samuel that his sons would be killed 
and that the Ark of the Covenant would be taken. And so then when he found out, someone came in, he told him what happened. And it says in 1 Samuel 4.18, Then it happened when he made mention of the Ark of God that had been taken, that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. So that term heavy there is the same term for glory here in Psalm 115. So one commentary gives a good definition. He says glory in the Old Testament carries associations of weight, worth, wealth, splendor, and dignity, all of which are present when God is said to have received, revealed his glory. So why then does God deserve to be given glory? Well, if you look at the next part of the verse, it gives us the answer. It says, for your steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, these terms are very crucial terms. They're used a lot in the Old Testament. If you just do a study through the book of Psalms, you'll see them all over the place. Steadfast love, faithfulness. And R.L. Harris defines steadfast love in this way. It is loving kindness, warm-hearted, unselfish love that leaves one's own rights out of consideration, longing to do good to a friend or foe, worthy or unworthy. So to put it simply, it's the idea of grace for us. It's unmerited favor. It's being given what you don't deserve. And then the second term, your steadfast love and then faithfulness. So that idea of meaning God is faithful, he is reliable, he is trustworthy. So we worship then a God, and he deserves glory because he is faithful to give us his steadfast love. So the first reason then to worship God and to avoid idolatry is because God and God only is to be worshipped, not idols. The second reason to worship God and avoid idolatry is because God is far greater than any idol. So notice verse 2. It says, why should a nation say where is there a God? So it's kind of an interesting question. You know, why, why are they even asking this question in the first place? Well, if you know a little bit about the background, it kind of helps. Um, I mean, perhaps God was chastising them. Perhaps Israel was in sin. And it would have looked like, you know, what's going on? Where is your God? We don't see him. Um, most commentators think it's, like, as I said, a post-exilic context. So basically, it took place when the Israelites came back to Israel from Babylon. So if you think about that context, it would have been a small remnant. The place would have been in ruins. You know, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, they were had to rebuild the, the walls and the temple. If you think about like a good contrast story, think about Rahab. Remember when they were going into Jericho to take over? And she was afraid. And she said, we've heard what you've done in Egypt. Our hearts have melted. And so it was kind of the opposite example there where God's reputation was great and and she was fearful of what might happen we've got with them coming in and and just if you think about the uh, ancient near eastern world that kind of as i mentioned before it was full of polytheism meaning there were just lots and lots of different gods that they worshiped and so the thing is they had an image everywhere for some particular deity that they would bow down to. So Israel was unique because they were monotheistic. They only had one God. 
And there God said, no images of me. And you remember in the golden calf example, they got in big trouble for putting an image of him. So Israel was just unique because they didn't have a God who was below that it could be seen. So that kind of explains a little bit about why they asked the question. And, you know, something just to consider for us, you know, how often do we ask that question too? We may not say it. In the same way, we may not even say it directly, but maybe when trials come our way, maybe when difficulties arise, we, we say, why God? You know, I don't understand why you're letting this happen. So we're not really so different from the pagans. And it says nations there, and that's just speaking of the ancient world of pagan Gentiles. So what is their answer? Well, it's, it's kind of a funny answer. It's pretty... Um, Pretty arrogant sounding. And it's pretty simple. They say, our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. So why does he say the heavens? Well, the heavens really speaks of God's transcendence. It shows that he is just so far beyond us. He's so greater than anything and anyone. It shows that he is the sovereign ruler of everything. Listen to what it says in Psalm 113. And notice this is also an Egyptian Hallel psalm. It says, The Lord is high above all nations, and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? So that term, who looks far down, it really has the idea of him humbling himself. He, it's like he demeans himself to even look upon us. I mean, that's how great he is. What can he do? Well, it says in the verse, he does all that he pleases. And that term has the idea that he does all that he desires, all that he wills. Anything that brings him pleasure is what the theologians call God's omnipotence. He can do anything he wants. So then for us today, we worship a God who is in the heavens and can do whatever he wants. So keep this in mind when you're struggling, when you're experiencing hardships. He can help us. Even if something seems impossible, with God all things are possible because he can do all that he pleases. Well, so we've seen then what God can do. Well, what about their idols? What are they capable of? We see that from the next section. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands, says in verse 4. So notice, first of all, that they are created by humans. So although they are valuable, because it says gold and silver, they are from this world. They're not from the heavens like our God, like the true God. So they are creations of the created. And what can they do? Just keep in mind that our God, he can do all that he pleases. Well, look at the verses. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. I mean, just consider all these different body parts they have. But just a lack of a basic function. I mean, they can't see even though they have eyes. It doesn't say they have mouths and they can't speak. It says no sound even comes from your mouth. So they're not incapable of even making the sound. They can't even make like a grunt or any kind of noise. And even babies can do these basic functions. 
It's kind of sad to think about. So then, how does that apply? Well, the futility of, futility of these idols is the same as our modern idols that we struggle with and that we often worship. You know, you can't turn to your money or your big house or your education when you're having real problems, when you're diagnosed with cancer or when the stock market crashes. You know, our idols do not satisfy. Only the true and faithful God does. Well, then someone may ask, well, what about those people out there who have a ton of money and life just seems to be good? And nothing wrong ever seems to go their way. Well, Mark 8.36 has a good answer. It says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? So maybe they do have their best lives now. <laughs> but in light of eternity, it's nothing, okay? <laughs> so what is the summary of this? God is to be worshipped and not idols because God is far greater than any idol. He does what he wants. They do nothing. He is of heaven. They are, they are of earth. He is the creator. They are the created. Well, the third reason why we should worship God and avoid idolatry is because there are great benefits in worshiping God unlike idols. So verse 8 tells us the benefits, quote-unquote, of worshiping idols. It says, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So what is going on here? What, it's kind of a weird thing to think about. What does it mean to trust in them and becoming like them? Well, just think about the previous context. Think about 4 through 7. They're, they're lifeless, these idols. They're dead. They don't do anything. So I think we can say then that idolatry is fatal. It leads to death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. James 1.15 says sin when it is fully born brings forth death. You can also say, and this comes from John MacArthur in his commentary, idolatry leads to spiritual uselessness. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So when we are worshiping our idols, we are not glorifying God. And finally, idolatry in general is a hard life. We hear this a lot at the counseling conference. Proverbs thirteen fifteen is a good one to use. The way of the transgressor is hard. So sin has consequences. So there really aren't that many benefits to trusting in idols except for the temporary yet unsatisfying pleasures of this world. Well, what then are the benefits to worshiping the true God? Well, we see, first of all, that God can be trusted, verses 9 through 11. So it kind of helps. Let me just give you a quick recap of where it came from. At the very beginning, verse 1, it said God and God only is to be worshiped. Okay, then the nations question, well, where is your God? And then there's an answer, our God's in the heaven, he does all that he pleases. And then they say, okay, our God's great, let's look at your gods. They're on earth, they can do nothing, and those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. And then, verse 9, trust in the Lord. 
So it's a nice contrast here. So don't trust in idols, trust in the Lord. Don't be like the pagan nations who put their trust in idols and become like them. Instead, put your trust in the true God, in the living God. Just think about like the original audience, okay? These people of Israel who have recently been brought back from captivity. And that should have given them great reason to trust in the Lord. The fact that he is faithful, that he brought them back like he said he would. And not to mention just all the mighty acts that God did during the time of Egypt. You know, they were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And God said that he would bring them out, and he did. And then in 9, 10, and 11, it mentions three groups. It says, house of Israel, house of Aaron, and you who fear the Lord. So more, more than likely, the house of Israel would have been speaking of the people of Israel. And the house of Aaron, the, uh, the priests, and then you who fear the Lord, probably the God-fearers at the time, meaning the Gentile converts. It'd be people like Rahab who had put their faith and trust in the true God. And then it says, it tells them, you trust in the Lord, and then it says, he is their help and their shield. So more than likely that was just a liturgical kind of thing. They, maybe it was a song where different groups sang different parts. And then notice that there's a repetition. It says, trust in the Lord three times. It's very similar to what we looked at in verse 1. You know, just that repetition, it shows emphasis. And it's a command. It's calling the people of God to trust in the Lord. And of course, we are called to do the same thing. And since it's a command, it should be a comforting thing. Because that means that we can do it. God's not going to command us to do something that we are incapable of doing. So we can rely on God. We can have confidence in God. He is a faithful God. Well, why then? Why can we trust in the Lord? Well, if we just look at this psalm alone, we'll see many reasons. Verse 1, it said, His love is steadfast, meaning it's firm, solid, it's unmovable. He is faithful. In verse 1, He is reliable, He is dependable. Verse 3, he is in the heavens, meaning he's sovereign, he reigns, he is in charge, he is a king, he's on our side. Kind of reminds me of a story, I, my first mission trip ever, I went to Brazil, Belo Horizonte, and it was a very, uh, very big city, I think 5 million people, but it was crowded within this tiny little area, so a bunch of sardines in this little area, and the people drove like crazy. And it was incredibly dangerous. Pretty much every building had walls. And uh, on top would be barbed wire and cut off glass that was stuck to it. And then there was multiple locks just to get inside someone's house. So I was going with a friend. We were going to do a video project. Basically, we were going to make a support video for a missionary there so that he could use it when he came back to the States. So I had a really nice HD camera. And my friend had the same, I had a video camera and he had a regular camera. And so, so we were kind of like constantly looking around because it was a very dangerous area. And at one time, my friend had a camera in one hand and a bat in the other. And we were just walking around the city. <laughs> so we were watching our surroundings. We were, we were looking very carefully at everything because my camera was valuable here. But if you think about Brazil, it was even more valuable because at the time, well, and probably now too, but at the time, a dollar there was like 40 or 
yeah, $40 or hay eyes there. So it was just really pricey. And so we were kind of just keeping a, a watch. And then one day, one of the guys in the ministry, he came with us, you know. And he was this big guy. He was 6'5", just rock solid. His name was, nickname was Donkey, kind of like Donkey Kong. And he was just a big guy. <laughs> and he had this really tight black shirt and these sunglasses. And he was just walking in front of us just casually and as we were videoing. And we noticed as he was walking that people were just staying away from him, you know. <laughs> And, and I, I just felt great there. I mean, I felt like the safest guy in the world. I, <laughs> I felt safer there probably than downtown Woodstock. I mean, just big old guys walking around. <laughs> and so it's kind of a, it's a funny illustration, but what's even greater is that we have the God of the universe, and he is walking in front of us in a dangerous world. And just as my Brazilian friend was keeping us safe and protecting us, well, look what it says in verse 9, 10, 11. He says, he is our help and our shield. So our God, he does the same thing. So just what great motivation then to trust in the Lord. But what about trials or difficulties? You know, we all experience this. What do we do? Well, first of all, just keep in mind Romans eight twenty eight. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. So even in times of difficulty, we can trust in him. And if you are struggling with trusting in the Lord, I suggest trusting God by Jay Bridges. And here's how he puts it. He says, God is omniscient, so he knows what is best for us. God is sovereign, so he is able to bring, out, bring about what is best for us. And God is love, so he wants us to have what is best for us. So what a great benefit then to trusting in the true God or worshiping the true God, the fact that we can trust in him. Second benefit comes from 12 and 13, the fact that he is mindful of us. Verse 12, the Lord has been mindful of us. Turn real quick to Psalm 8, uh, 3. It's just kind of a good parallel passage to this idea. It gives it a little more explanation. It says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? Mindful being the same term used in Psalm 115. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. So just what a great benefit for us that God is mindful of us. It kind of reminds us of Psalm 113, which I read a little bit before, how he looks far down, he humbles himself just to behold us. And for us today, ultimately, you know, he sent his son down to die for us. And then just think about, you know, in the context, think about Israel, all the times they fell back into idolatry. And yet God was consistently remembering them. He cared for them. So it says God is mindful, has been mindful of us, and it says he will bless us, both the small and the great. And the idea there is, is everyone. And it says first the small, or it could be the young and the old. So it's just meaning this is everyone. And which brings us to the next benefit. God blesses us. You know, once again, we have in fourteen fifteen a repetition. You have the same three groups, 
And it says, he will bless us. And then notice how it says, the maker of the heaven and earth. Meaning, it will happen. God has the power. He can do it. So what then does it mean to bless? It's basically, it's just God giving us good things. Think back to Abraham. You know, God said, I will bless you. I will make you a great nation through your seed. All nations will be blessed. And so we can see that just as we read, read through the Old Testament, how God was faithful to fulfill his covenant promises with Israel. And for us today, this is speaking of Israel, but we know from the New Testament that the Lord blesses us too. So we can think about like Ephesians 1. You know, it says, He has blessed us with every spiritual gift in the heavenly places. Or we can consider the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And the list goes on and on. And not to mention the greatest blessing of Jesus Christ coming down and the fact that we can have all of our sins forgiven. Verse 16, it says, The heavens are the Lord's, but the earth is given, but the earth he has given to the children of man. So once again, how do we know he's capable of blessing us? And how do we know that he's trustworthy? Well, he is the creator of all. And it's funny to think about like how he's given us the earth. It's like just nothing. Like, here you have the earth, and look what we've done with it. You know? But we have been given the ability to inhabit it and to have dominion over it and to dwell within it. So with a final benefit comes from verse 17 and 18. It says, The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into the pit. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So the final benefit and a fitting conclusion for this psalm is the fact that we have eternal blessings. Unlike the dead who worship idols, who go to the grave, we have been given eternal life. We will be able to bless God forever. So then what a great reason for us to worship God and to avoid idolatry. Just think about all the benefits we just went through. Hey, God helps us. He protects us. He is trustworthy. He is mindful of us. He blesses us in this life, and he blesses us with eternal life. Think about it this way. God blesses me. God helps me. God protects me. God is mindful of me. Well, I did finish the story about Emperor Hideyoshi. Now, shortly after Emperor Hideyoshi completed the building of the statue of Buddha, an earthquake brought down the roof, crashing down and wrecking the statue. Enraged, Hideyoshi shot an arrow at the fallen colossus. I put you here at great expense, he shouted, and you can't even look after your own temple. Well, may we not be like this man who put his trust in this vain idol. Let us instead worship the true God, because he only is to receive glory, because he is far greater than any idol, and because he truly blesses those who trust in him. Let's pray. God, we just praise you tonight for being a faithful God who is holy, 
who loves us. You are far beyond anything that this world can offer. You are the living water and the bread of life who provides true satisfaction for us. We praise you that we can trust you, that you are mindful of us, and that you take care of us. Help us, Lord, to forsake idolatry. Help us to put it away and to flee from it. And help us to seek to be like the people in this psalm, especially in verse 1, that we will say not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.